Mark chapter 15, verses 1 through 15. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison, who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Mark chapter 15, we've been, we've been digging into the gospel of Mark, looking at the life and ministry of Jesus over this last year. And, and we dove into this book with a very specific mission. We, we dove into the gospel of Mark with a specific mission, which was to get to know the real Jesus. We want to get to know the real Jesus because every single one of us, not just skeptics and atheists, but sometimes Christians, people who grew up in the church, we come to Jesus with our assumptions of who he is and why he matters. And so we've been working through the Gospel of Mark with a specific mission to get to know the real Jesus, to see how he's bigger and better than the assumptions that we make about him. He's more beautiful than we could ever imagine. In these last couple of weeks, we've been working our way through the, the sober scene, the final hours of Jesus' life. When Jesus was betrayed by one of his closest, when he was abandoned by the rest, when he stood trial for his life before a group of religious leaders that should have had his back, but have been his enemies all along. And this morning, Jesus stands trial again. He stands trial again, and, and he has to stand trial again because the first trial with the religious leaders was to charge Jesus with blasphemy, which isn't enough to get someone killed, which was their goal. And so now that they have charged him with blasphemy, they, they kind of put some chains on him, they drag him over, and, and they want to charge him now for treason. They want to charge him for treason from, against the government because that is the one charge that would secure his death. And in this scene, when Jesus is charged with treason, when he's sent to be crucified, we will see that who Jesus is and what he came to do what he accomplished is greater, much greater than we could ever imagine about him on our own. And so that's why we're grateful for God's word to reveal that to us. And so we're going to look at three points this morning, how Jesus has a greater kind of 
power. Secondly, Jesus has a greater sort of posture of his, of his heart. Uh, thirdly, we're going to look at how Jesus gives us now a greater position. Number one, Jesus has a greater power. Read verse one with me of Mark 15. It says, as soon as it was morning, <clears throat> the chief priests held a consultation, which is a cute way of saying they conspired against him. So the the chief priests had a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. Now, who's this whole council? Who's this council of the scribes and elders and all those people? Like, these are the ones that have been gunning for Jesus all throughout the Gospel of Mark. All throughout the Gospel of Mark, they're the ones that had him stand on trial before them just in the, the verses that we looked at last week. It's important for us to understand that in the first century, religious leaders were like the main influencers. And amongst the Jewish people around Jerusalem, like the religious leaders, they were like the big dogs on campus. They were the main influencers. If they were in the 21st century, like they'd be the ones with the badges next to their profile, right? And so when Jesus shows up and he starts disrupting things, teaching with authority, that they supposedly had when he starts performing miracles, when he starts gaining a larger following, they start plotting to get him arrested and killed because he's he's a threat to their establishment. And so last week, they, they have this sort of mock trial to charge him with blasphemy. Why? Because claim because he was claiming to be the Christ. He was claiming to have equality with God. That was true of Jesus. Jesus did have equality with God. He taught that he had equality with God, but they did not like that. And so they charged him with blasphemy. And you know what? People today still hate this about Jesus. People today, they hate that Jesus claimed to have the authority of God. The reason they rejected him is the same reason that people reject him today. You see, people today, we don't reject Jesus because of the Sermon on the Mount or because of his great miracles or because of his great example. No, we reject him because of his claim to be God, his claim to be ruler, his claim to be king. His claim to be a savior, because if we admit that, if we give him that, that he's Lord and that he's savior, then then we have to admit that we are sinners in need of saving. That can't save ourselves. And so that's why they charge him and they want to kill him over it. They want to charge him for blasphemy and they want him killed over it. But the issue, like we mentioned earlier, is that they don't have the judicial right to get him killed for this. And so they have to send him for, to uh, a Roman uh, governor who can make that call. It's like if you, get, if you get arrested for murder in the city of Rancho Santa Margarita and the sheriff's department picks you up. They can't put you to death, but the state can. The federal government might be able to, but the local community can't. And, that, and that's why they tried to get him in front of Pilate. 
They need to turn their personal beef with him into a political one. They need to turn their religious beef with him into a political one. And so verse 1 says that after all their conspiring that they did in the night, they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to this guy named Pilate. Pilate was a Roman governor. He represents Caesar and Rome, who, is, who are the real ones in charge. Rome was the ones who were really in charge over Jerusalem. Caesar was on their coins. He was the one that really ruled over Jerusalem. And so Pilate, this Roman governor, he's only in town in Jerusalem because of all the religious festivals going on. And so they send him there to kind of keep check, to, to make sure nothing gets out of hand. And so these religious leaders, they drag Jesus over to Pilate and they say, hey, this guy, this Jesus, he thinks he's our king. He calls himself the king of the Jews. Now, that's a problem for Rome. Why is that a problem? Because if Jesus claims to be the king of the Jews, then the real king, Caesar, whose Pilate's boss's boss, is going to be ticked about that. Because he sees himself as the rightful king. He sees himself as the rightful God to rule over Jerusalem and the surrounding area. And so if Pilate wants to keep his job, who doesn't, then anyone who claims to be king that wasn't appointed king needs to be put to death for treason. That's the scene. And so what happens? Look at verse 2. So Pilate asked him, Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, you have said so. Kind of a weird response, right? Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? Are, are, are you what they're claiming you are? And Jesus says, you've said so. He doesn't give a hard yes he doesn't give a hard no. He just says, you have said so. Which is kind of like this cryptic way of saying, yeah, but not the kind of king that you're thinking. You see, Jesus' power is not like the earthly kings. He has a greater kind of power. He has a greater kind of kingdom. See, this moment when Jesus says, you have said so, this is where we get a glimpse. This is where we get sort of a tease of the greater power that Jesus has. Jesus isn't the kind of king who rules with aggressive power and threats like Rome did. Jesus' power is greater. It's, it's, it's tender. It's also expansive. It's the power of God's kingdom. That's the kingdom that Jesus rules over, God's kingdom, everywhere that God rules. A lot of us are uncomfortable, though, in the 21st century with this idea of Jesus as a king, right? I was told by a, a friend of mine who works at a, a, another local church in there, he's like, you know, do you really want to name this church like King's Cross? Like king is sort of like an archaic language, right? Like no one talks about kings anymore, to which I responded, the Bible does. <laughs> the Bible does. But see, yeah, I mean, he, he kind of expressed this sentiment that a lot of us kind of, kind, of, kind, of, kind of come with. We kind of presuppose this idea that, you know, this idea of kings is uncomfortable. 
The culture at large has moved on from this idea of kingship, right? Where these powerful men rule over a kingdom of many peoples. It just kind of seems old and archaic. Again, this postmodern world, or if you want to call it like a post-postmodern world, kings are either like hardline dictators that rule with an iron fist today, or they're like, they have no real political power and their role is just like customary more than anything, right? Like in the UK. But then there's also something in us that we have to admit that there's something in us that's drawn to these epic stories of a true king. There's something ingrained in us, something sort of etched in our hearts that that draws us to all these epic stories that get released year after year of a true king, of a good king, like Aslan of Narnia or Aragorn of Middle-earth and all these kings that show up in movies and epics and stories. It just... It just kind of woos our heart in a certain way. It kind of makes us flutter and say, like, yeah, why can't there be a king like that? There's a, a, a Fleming Rutledge, who's this Episcopal theologian. She touches on, uh, she points out that the idea of a benevolent king is so ingrained in our hearts and minds that no amount of political correctness can wash it away. You see, Jesus, he is that king that we long for. He's the truer king. He's a truer king than Pilate's Caesar, than Pilate's boss's boss. He's also a truer and better king than his ancestor, David, the king of the Jews. Jesus is the final king. He's, he's called in Revelation the king of all kings, the Lord of all lords, the one who will renew all creation under his benevolent rule and reign to restore all that was lost in the fall. That's the kind of king that he is. And so Jesus says, yes, I'm a king, but not that kind of king. Not the kind of king they're saying I'm claiming to be. I am a king, but not that kind of king. Jesus is not only Israel's king, but he's also the king of the world. Not just the king of a a physical kingdom and a physical people, but of a heavenly kingdom and a spiritual people. So Pilate at this morning, when Jesus responds that way in this text, Pilate's kind of confused, which is understandable, right? Pilate's confused by Jesus' response. What we see next is that Jesus doesn't just hold greater power, but he also has a greater posture of his heart, a posture of complete humility. And that's our second point. Jesus has a greater posture. You see, at this point, Pilate's starting to really pick up on the fact that Jesus is not like a real threat to Caesar's kingdom. Like, he... He thinks uh, that, you know, Jesus is either speaking in platitudes uh, or maybe Jesus is a little nuts, right? He's not sure which one of that, which of those it is. But he he can kind of sense that Jesus isn't a real threat to him or to Caesar or to Rome. And so the chief priests, they kind of pick up on that and they start to question Jesus themselves. We see this in verse 3. It says the chief priests accused him. They accused Jesus of many things. 
Yeah, picture them acting like little kids, right? Like, like he did this, and he did that. No, he, yeah, he did this too. It says they accused him of many things. They see Pilate's face. They see that Pilate's not really like all as, that concerned, as concerned as they want him to be. And so, and, and so they start accusing him of many things. In verse 4, it says, And Pilate asked him again, as, Pilate again asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? He's saying, Jesus, this is your only chance to defend yourself. Say something. Verse 5, but Jesus made no further answer. And so that Pilate was amazed. Pilate was amazed. See, wherever Jesus goes, he amazes. His teaching amazed everybody. His authority by which he he taught and he walked amazed everybody. His miracles amazed everyone. And here, his silence amazes. We talked last week about how Jesus' disciples would later realize that that Jesus' silence in this final hour was an echo of what was prophesied about him in Isaiah 53. He's like a lamb led to a slaughter who opened not his mouth because he came with a mission, a primary mission, to lay down his life for sinners. And, and this, this scandal, this, this mock trial, this, these accusations against Jesus, that would just be the tool that would be used to get him to the cross. And so Jesus is silent, and that silence amazes Pilate, and yet it should amaze us too. It should amaze us too. Like, have you noticed that every time Jesus was met with a challenge throughout the Gospel of Mark, he engaged full throttle. Thousands of people needed to eat. Jesus stepped in to feed them. Thousands of people were sick. Jesus stepped in to heal them. Dead little girl, dead old man, Jesus stepped in to raise them from the dead. Jesus always engaged. He never disengages. He disengages once to pray, but here he disengages just in silence. He's silent. Why? Because of that prayer he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, I don't want to go to the cross. If there's any way, any other way for us to save them, to save sinners, other than me to have to go to the cross, then please reveal it. But if not, then not my will, but yours be done. Remember that prayer? Remember that prayer in the garden when Jesus said, not my will, but yours be done. He had the cup of God's wrath in front of him. This proverbial cup of God's wrath. He could picture it in front of him. The wrath of God against all our sin was sitting in this proverbial cup in front of him. And Jesus was saying, God, I don't want to drink from this cup. If there's any other way for this to happen than for me to have to go to the cross, then reveal it. But at the end of the day, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus prayed that prayer. And the Spirit 
in the garden, when he prayed that prayer, the Holy Spirit strengthened Jesus's resolve. And now he's prepared to go to the cross. Jesus prayed. The Spirit strengthened him. Now he's prepared to go to the cross. And so he stands silent. And his silence just amazes Pilate. It amazes Pilate. I, I learned something interesting last week when I started studying for, for this passage. The, the Greek word for amazed, thaumazo, is actually a positive one. It means to wonder at or to, to marvel in admiration. You see, when it says that Jesus was silent and Pilate was amazed, I kind of always read that as like Pilate was like, dude, how are you not saying anything, right? Like Pilate, but Pilate wasn't that kind of amazed. He wasn't like Jesus, like you're an idiot. Why don't you say anything? Why don't you speak up for yourself? He's more marveling in admiration at Jesus's resolve. He's more admiring the contrast between Jesus and his enemies. You see, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, they were frantic. They were losing their minds. They're afraid that Jesus might go free. And so they're flipping their lid. They're like, he did this, he did that. They're trying to accuse him of all these things. But Jesus, on the other hand, he's calm. He's confident. And that contrast amazes Pilate. You see, Jesus has a greater posture of heart because he is confident in the sovereign plan of God. He prayed, not your will, but, or not my will, but yours be done. And now he's, he's living that out. Jesus prayed to the God, like, I don't, I don't want to have to go through this, but at the end of the day, not my will, but yours. And now he is living out his faith in that prayer that he uttered. You see, his enemies are trying to use power to harm him, but Jesus is actually laying down his power, his great kingly power to forgive them, to forgive his enemies, to forgive sinners, to forgive you and me. I want you to get how wild and countercultural this is. Like, like the just idea of Jesus laying down his, his, his power in, in this way, staying silent in this way. Like, what is the ultimate symbol of the Christian faith? What is it? Right, the cross. The cross is the ultimate symbol of the Christian faith, right? It's the, the ultimate religious symbol that represents Christianity. But long before the cross was a religious symbol, it was actually a political one. Long before the cross was the religious symbol for Christianity, in the first century it was a political symbol used by Rome because the cross was used by Rome to threaten anyone who stood against them. Thousands of people were executed on crosses for treason, for rebellion, for stealing from Rome. The cross was Rome's sort of strong arm in the Jewish region. It was their sort of proverbial like nuclear bomb. It was their flex of power to say, we're in charge. Look at this cross. You want this to be you? We're the ones that are in charge. We wield this cross. 
Oftentimes, they would place crosses near a village, like a Jewish village to, or any other village in the region, to sort of make a statement, to say, look, hey, this is what happens if you get in our way. This is what happens if you challenge our power, challenge our dominion. It's likely that Jesus witnessed crucifixions even as a child and living in the Galilee region. They were this ubiquitous kind of everywhere symbol used by Rome to say, hey, don't try anything. Don't get wise. You see, Rome was a kingdom that ruled by threat of power and violence. And the cross for them was its symbol for that. And Jesus' enemies here in our text, in Mark 15, the enemies of Jesus, they were capitalizing on Rome's bloodlust to satisfy their own. They painted Jesus to be an enemy of the state, and now they're dragging him to Pilate early in the morning after their midnight mock trial just so they could try and get him up on one of those crosses by sundown. And in the middle of all that, in the middle of this kind of crazy commotion trying to get Jesus to the cross, Jesus, he knows what's happening. And he's silent. He's still. Why? Because this is part of the Father's sovereign plan. This is part of the Father's sovereign will that Jesus said, not mine, but yours. Your sovereign will. This is the unfolding covenant of redemption that Jesus made with his Father to lay down his life for sinners. This is the moment. And this posture, this posture that Jesus is having, this posture of humility, this posture of trust in his God, trust in the Father is so great. It's so wild. It's so counterintuitive. It's so unexpected. Because every kingdom revolution that ever happened before this day always came by seizing power and by destroying enemies. That's how kingdom revolutions came. But Jesus ushers in God's kingdom. Jesus ushers in his kingdom by laying down his life for his enemies. That's the way of the kingdom. That's the way of the kingdom. It's it's foolish to the natural man, but it's the gospel. It's the good news. This is the way of the kingdom. And Jesus now invites us to not only accept it, but to live it, to take up our crosses and to follow him. You see, a question for us could be, what does following a king like this look like? What does following a king like Jesus look like? Not a king of power, but a king of grace. Not a king who flexes his power, but gives it up in service for others. It means, it means that on the one hand, you have this incredible inner peace, just like Jesus did. You have this incredible inner peace resting in the sovereign plan of God over your life. The world around you is frantic. It's crazy, it's nuts, it's frantic, but you're calm. Even when there's like random sounds just coming at you, you're calm and confident because 
God, by his spirit, is, is with you and in you. His promises ring true for you. His plan rings trustworthy. It also means that you lay down and use the power and gifts that were given to you in the service of others. And so serving others becomes not something that you have to do, but something that you get to do. You see it as a privilege to lay yourself down so that others can be served, so that others can be lifted up. And so serving your neighbor who's going through like a really hard time, making them a meal, watching their kids, just being there for them to listen, is not a burden to you, but a gift. And so when you're serving maybe in like the kids' ministry, right? If you're serving in the kids' ministry or the nursery, it's not because you, you primarily have to fill a need because you keep hearing that there's a need, but it's because you get to serve the least of these. You get to help shape young minds to know and love Jesus. Or if you're serving on, on let's say, like set up and tear down, it's not because you have to, because that's another need you know but because you see others as more valuable than yourselves. And so you haul stuff knowing that you're helping create a hospitable worship environment for God's people and for, for visitors to worship King Jesus on the Lord's day. It means you have a godly concern for the poor, for the oppressed, for the abused, for the hurt, for the lonely around you in our neighborhoods in our nation. You see, the way of the kingdom is to make much of God by giving up my anxieties to his plan, but also giving up my, my privilege and my power to the service of, of others. And it leads us to our final point, how Jesus gives us now a greater position. You know what's so great about the position Jesus stands in at this point in the story? You see, we're going to see that the place that Jesus stands in is in my place, is in your place. Mark highlights this substitutionary role of Jesus clearly in the next few verses. You see, the idea is that every Passover, Pilate would take all the guys that are on death row, set to be crucified on a cross, and he would allow the people to choose one person and give them sort of like a presidential pardon, right? Kind of like the, the turkey that gets pardoned on Thanksgiving, but like meaningful, right? And so Pilate's, Pilate's a politician, and so his goal is always to please the people, right? That's always his purpose. And he's got this... He's got this thing that he does to sort of please the people, sort of make them make, make his ratings go up. It's this, this pardon that he gives, and we read about it in verse 6. It says, Now at the feast, he used to release for them, Pilate used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And so what we see here is at this point, there's a guy named Barabbas. He's a murderer. And he's an insurrectionist, which means that at one point, he kind of took a bunch of guys and he went all Braveheart on like a camp of Romans, Roman soldiers, and he killed a bunch of them. An insurrection. This, this guy's a savage. He's an insurrectionist. He's a murderer. 
And so the people go to Pilate and they say, hey, do that thing where you, where you, where you release a prisoner. Do that thing that you do for us. And then in verse 9, it says that Pilate answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived, speaking of Jesus there, and it says that he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. You see, Pilate's got some wise intuition. He knows that when the religious leaders bring Jesus to his door and ask for him to be crucified, Pilate knows, he's like, there's something, there's something else going on behind the scenes. He's smart enough to pick up on that. And so, and Pilate's not a fan of the Jews. He's not a fan of the religious leaders. If Pilate had his ways, the Jews wouldn't be allowed to worship and stay together as a people. But, 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 but the, the way that it was in Rome is that the Jews were allowed to worship. They had their festivals, and this was one of their festivals, the Passover season. So Pilate's only in town to make sure that these Jews, who see, he sees as like less than, that they don't cause too much trouble. So Pilate here, he makes a political jab at the Jewish leaders. And he says, all right, you want me to release someone? How about this, this, this harmless Jesus that you brought to my door? Right? Why, 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 why don't you release him? Read what happens in verse 11. It says, but the chief priests, they stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And so you kind of see them like going all throughout the crowd, just like, hey, say Barabbas, say Barabbas, right? Like trying to, trying to sort of like manipulate the process in, in the system. The chief peace stirred up in the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, then what shall I do with the man that you call king of the Jews? And they cried out again, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? Notice, they don't actually answer that question. They just shout all the more, crucify him. And so Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, like any other good politician, he released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, ripped the flesh off his back with whips. He delivers Jesus to be crucified. The crowd preferred Barabbas to Jesus. They preferred Barabbas to Jesus. Like, let, let that sink in for you. This scene invites us in the clearest way possible to see how Jesus' crucifixion is a personal exchange in the fullest sense of that phrase. This is a personal exchange. Barabbas deserved to die. Jesus dies instead. Barabbas was a guilty man. He's set free to live his life. Jesus was an innocent man crucified on a Roman cross. When you read this, it should shock you. It should sadden you. And then it should cause you to take God's word, hold it up as a mirror, as James encourages us to do, and ask ourselves, who do you identify with in this story? Are you like the crowd 
that doesn't want to follow Jesus as Lord. And so you just turn on him instead. You say, yeah, I've, I've heard about the things that he's done. I've, I've heard him teach. I've, I've heard of his authority and the things that he's, he's done. But I don't want to follow him as Lord. I like being Lord over my own life. So you turn on him because that's the only way to make him go away. Or are you like Pilate who knows Jesus is innocent, but you still want to please the crowd. And so when pressure comes in from others, you still turn on Jesus. Maybe, maybe you resonate with one of those. But at the very least, I want to see that all of us can relate to Barabbas. All of us can relate to Barabbas. You see, as a church, we should read this and say, Jesus is innocent. He's the innocent one. Why is this happening? Why is this happening? He's being condemned for a crime that he didn't do. He's being charged for blasphemy that he didn't say. If he's being crucified for anything that he did, then why is he being crucified? He's innocent. Philip Bliss, this, this old uh, uh, poet and, and hymn writer, he answered this question when he penned the words in the last poem and song that he wrote where he says, in my place, condemned, he stood. In my place, condemned, he stood. In Barabbas' place, condemned, Jesus stood. But in my place, condemned, Jesus stood. In your place, condemned, Jesus stood. Jesus is taking Barabbas' place. He's taking my place. He's taking your place. There is a picture of our salvation. The innocent one takes the place of the guilty one. Barabbas was set to be crucified. He already had a cross with his name on it. But at that moment, at this moment, because of the crowd, because of the pressure, primarily because of the sovereign plan of God, there was an exchange, a great exchange. And in God's sovereign plan for sinners, Jesus loses his position as the innocent one. And he takes on the position of the guilty one. Jesus, who was innocent, could stand having done nothing wrong. Pilate knew it. Pilate knew that. That's why he was trying to give them a chance to change their mind. Jesus, who stood innocent, lost his position as innocent one and took on the position of a guilty one. And now for you, by grace through faith in Jesus, you can lose your position as a guilty one and put on his greater position as the innocent one. In my place condemned he stood this great exchange between Jesus and a sit and a sinner is the primary focus point of what we see in this story it's the pinnacle of the gospel that's why we call it good news 
That's why we call it good news. Jesus absorbed the payment for sin on our behalf. In our place, for our sins, condemned he stood. Did he deserve it? No. Do I deserve it? Yeah. But in my place, condemned he stood. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.